You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Today we're going to start um, James, the book of James. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to James chapter 1. And... Uh, so, you know, I, I always feel like I'm being like um, drawn to a book or something. That's really how I pick it. And I was actually being drawn to James before we started going through uh, 1 John, 2 and 3 John. Um, because when I grabbed one of my Bibles this week to start looking over James again, because I, I kept coming back to James and then I had all these... <laughs> Notes. I was like, oh, yeah, well, I was going to do this before, but decided not to. So um, I just finally decided this is the one I'd, I would go to. So as usual, you know, we ask some questions when starting a new book of the Bible. We ask questions like, who's the author? That's usually a given, but there's several. There's a, more than one James in the Bible. So, we, you know, we have to ask that. Who was the original audience? What was and is the purpose of the letter or the theme or message, right? So now some of the questions are answered at the beginning of these letters, as we see, uh, have seen and will see. However, we still have to ask, who, which James? Who is this? Um, and some, some are going to need to know what he means in the first verse when he says 12, the 12 tribes um, in the dispersion. All right, so first, first thing is that the author is James, and he's the brother of Jesus, okay? He was the brother of Jesus and Jude. We, some say half-brother, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, but, but Jesus be, begins his, his earthly ministry, and he starts to teach in Galilee. That, and he starts to say he's the Messiah. And he, he sits down in the synagogue, and he says, Today prophecy has been fulfilled, right? This is his very first declaration then is, is made in his hometown of Nazareth within the synagogue. Scripture tells us how Jesus' brother viewed his ministry. You know, if you have time later, you'll look in John 7, 2 through 5. We'll see his brother showing nothing but contempt, actually, for Jesus' claims. All right. Jesus' brothers advised Jesus then to just go to Jerusalem to, to, to declare himself the Messiah. They didn't believe him. They saw their brother engaged in this impossible task. And that impossible task was that of convincing the world that he was the Messiah by preaching uh, to, to these obscure towns, right, in Galilee. And they, they thought they knew better. They encouraged him to go to Jerusalem so he would be accepted because they didn't believe his claims. And they just thought it was a political campaign. It's, it says it in John 7 two, five, through 5. But after Jesus' death and his resurrection, he appeared to James, and this is according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, 
And by his appearing, Jesus brought his brother to faith. So it was after that moment, Jesus, or James, sorry, James becomes this faithful apostle, this leader in the church living in Jerusalem. He never again describes himself as the brother of Jesus. All right. He's foregoing his claim to any fleshly relationship with Jesus and instead identifies himself just as we would, a spirit, by spiritual association, a bondservant of God and Christ. So this is the James, who is the author of this letter. Now, some think that this epistle was a written uh, in response to an overzealous interpretation of the Apostle Paul's teaching. When it comes to regarding faith, okay, there's been a lot. Martin Luther, all right, I don't have an issue with Martin Luther. He started the Reformation. Um, but for a, for a while, he called, uh, it was something, he called this the straw letter or something. He despised this letter, and he, uh, there's claims that he had even ripped it out of his Bible because he didn't accept it. He would later start to change his mind on that. That's what, some people leave that out of the story. But he would later come to, uh, to, to change his mind and see exactly what's going on. Because what he and others have failed to recognize is that James's teaching on works actually complements, not contradicts, but it complements Paul's teaching on faith. All right. James isn't saying just works, works, works. This isn't works-based salvation. He's... he's uh, complimenting uh, the, the Paul's teaching on being saved by faith alone. Okay, while Paul's teachings concentrate on our justification with God, James teaches or, or concentrates on the works that exemplify that justification. We've talked about it many times. Once you are saved, right, Things change. You start doing things. And you'll be these things in which the Bible commands us to be. The good works that we are created for in Jesus, right? There's works now. You'll be a good husband. You'll be a good employer. You'll be a good father, a good wife, a good child, and so on. Because of who you are in Christ. All right? Some people read James and go, well, you got to work, 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 work. Do all these good things in order to be saved. But that, that's, not, that's not the case, okay? So James is writing to Jews, and he's writing to encourage them to continue to growing in this new Christian faith, because it's new. This is one of the earliest letters, okay? And he emphasizes that good actions will naturally flow from those who are filled with the Spirit, much as Paul would describe in, in Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23, and in Ephesians as well. Okay, so then we deal with the 12 tribes phrase in the first verse that we'll see that's used by James. If you guys don't know, know about this, we hit upon it a little bit. The letter applies to all Christians. We, we obviously should know that. But probably, James wrote... His letter before Gentiles, or at least a majority of Gentiles, were being brought into the church, okay? Or before there, um, there was a significant number. The 12 tribes is a Jewish figure of speech that sometimes referred to the Jewish people as a whole, 
And at this time, though, the Jesus or Jewish people, the Jesus people, <laughs> the Jewish people were scattered all over the known world then. Uh, there, there were Christian communities um, among almost every Jewish community throughout the known world. So more simplistic, though, the word desporia is a transliteration of a Greek word that just means to sow throughout or to distribute in foreign lands. They were scattered, scattered abroad. Okay, so that's what he means. Twelve tribes that have been scattered abroad. So some form of this Greek word is seen in six different New Testament passages. And its simplest meaning, uh, at its simplest meaning, it just refers to Jews who are living outside of Israel, having been dispersed or scattered to other Gentile countries. Okay, so with that, we start with verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So we, we classify James as one of the Jewish epistles, okay, in the New Testament. It's written from Jerusalem to the Jewish believers who had been dispersed, as we've said, meaning outside of Palestine. Altogether, there are five Jewish letters in the New Testament, all right? James, Hebrews, Jude, First and Second Peter. The five Jewish, Jewish letters share common themes and keeping with their common audience, all right? Now, Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter taught believers how to withstand the persecution that came upon Jews when they proclaimed the name of Jesus. A Jew who confessed Jesus was uh, particularly susceptible to persecution since their faith or their confession usually resulted in them being ostracized from their Jewish family and their friends. So James himself was eventually stoned to death in Jerusalem for violating the laws on orders of the Jewish high priest. You see that in the book of Acts. So all five Jewish letters are intensely just practical sermons, okay? Practical sermons on Christian living. They focus on how to live as a believer, especially to Jewish believers who have come out of a life based on traditions and the law. They don't offer much, you know, uh, I'll say this lightly, but they really don't offer much Christian doctrine or theology, if you will. They, they speak, though, they speak to the consequences of faith, not to the origin, not to or the content of faith, okay, but to the consequences of faith. James, in particular, is intensely focused on a believer's behavior rather than on his belief uh, or, or, or knowledge of it. Okay, so in, it, it's concerned with sanctification. Okay, this is sanctification. This is growing in maturity. A lot, uh, something that we've talked about a lot rather than the actual salvation. Okay, so verses two through four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And with those three texts right there, okay, we see the first theme summarized, which is Christian attitude and persistence when going through this 
these things called trials of various kinds here. James regards trials as inevitable, okay? Did you notice that he says when, not if you go into a trial or have a trial, right? He says when. And this word encounter or meet, it means to fall into something. It doesn't mean to yield to something as to fall into sin. It means to come upon something. By trials, Jesus is talking about Christians being persecuted in the first century here and being hated and receiving unfair treatment due to their profession and their faith. But James is also talking about ordinary difficulties here, like illness, financial difficulties, relationship struggles, unemployment, addiction, and so on. Okay, we can apply it all to this. He's talking about the maraud of life circumstances that come upon us as believers. Problems we face, urges we must resist, desires to control, but now because of our faith, we are called to respond differently to these circumstances. James commands us to consider or count these as all joy. It's not something we really... And, we're not used to that, right? Oh, well, like we need help. <laughs> and I'm not making fun because I, I'm always like, oh, I'm trying. <laughs> it's, it's not that the trials are joy. It's, it's what happens because of go, relying on God through them and what comes at the end. It's more sanctification. It's more maturity. It's more knowledge and wisdom and more trust in relying on God for provision, for help, for, for strength. Okay, that's what we are to consider. Look forward ahead to the end of this. Count it joy because of what it's going to bring out from this moment. It's hard to do that at sometimes, especially in the middle of a storm, if you will. But that consider or count, it means to make up your mind concerning something or to judge something. Our attitude is a product of our will, right? Of our judgments and our knowledge. We, we have a choice in how we view our circumstances especially those that come upon us because of, the, of our walk of faith. When we pray, prayed this morning, I prayed for those who don't have a church to go to in Ukraine. Their churches have been blown up. They're gathering underground in subways or at homes. There's videos of them singing hymns of praise to God in, in these subways. Right or these underground tunnels, they have no place to, to go as far as a building is concerned, but they're able, able to gather together anywhere, even in the middle of a war, to praise God and to go for Him for strength, right? So that being said, what I just said, we have a choice in how to view our circumstances. Most likely they can't get out or they would have or they've just chosen to stay. I don't know. But one thing they haven't abandoned is gathering together 
um, uh, to to worship. They're they're going. They're meeting to do it to give praise. It, it, it's their only hope right now. They're looking forward to the end and to the joy. Okay. So um, the the choice then is to count what you're going through, the trial, uh, and what it, it's it's going to conceive as joy. In in the Greek. That word joy is, is, I don't know how to pronounce it right, but it's chara, I think. But it means the supreme joy. It's the highest joy that one could have. So while we could face trials with fear or anger or sorrow, Christians are to choose to be joyful and to come to this attitude, not, not naturally, but rather as a result of our specific knowledge and what we know about the Lord, right? James says our approach to the trials of life work according to, to a similar principle, okay? The more we understand about how God is, is going to use the trial, the suffering, the circumstance, whatever you want to call it, in our life, the more we understand how God plans to bring us through that or to use it, then the better prepared we will be to face them properly. That's the point of verses 3 and 4. He's saying, he says, knowing is the key, right? To understand, to perceive properly. Faith is tested through, now tested, I know we talked about that, tested. It's not that you're going to abandon your faith, I don't believe. But it's put through, it's refined, I should say. Faith is refined through trials, okay? But it's not produced necessarily by trials. Trials reveal the faith that you have. Not because God doesn't know how much faith that you have, but to make our faith evident to ourselves in that moment and to others around us. So, so when the trials are received with faith, it then produces patience, but patience is not in inevitably produced in these times. If difficulties are received in, in unbelief and in grumbling, then trials produce bitterness and discouragement. And this is why James is exhorting us to count it all joy. Counting it all joy is faith's response to that time of trial or, or suffering. So he's, what he, he's getting at is he's talking about a consistency in our character, in our attitude that doesn't vary with the circumstances. And he says in verse 4 that our endurance, right, our steadfastness through these times is our consistent, patient attitude and the response to each difficulty. And then that, that then has a perfect result, right? Let and let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? Perfect and complete, here it simply means to be mature. He's saying, let endurance have its full effect that you will be mature. We've read a lot about maturity, right? The spiritual maturity, sanctification. James says that endurance leads 
to the result then of a complete maturity. That's perfection then in that sense. James also says the road that takes us to that maturity is filled with trials, with suffering. And as each one comes, we count it joy because we know we're learning patience, we're learning endurance, and that brings us to a greater level of maturity. So as James says, you will then lack nothing in the area of spiritual maturity. You will be greatly blessed as a result of your close walk with the Spirit. And so we need wisdom for this then, right? What did you say? I need more. I need not, not knowledge. I need wisdom. And James is going to tell us how to receive that wisdom because it only can come from God. And a moment ago, I said that the faith uh, is refined through trials, right? Not, it's not, faith is not produced by it. So if trials do not produce faith, what does, right? Well, Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing, right? And, hear, and hearing by the word of God. Faith is built in us as we hear and understand and trust in God's word. It always comes back to God's word. It always comes back to the Bible. So verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. James acknowledges that often the believer lacks the wisdom to face the situation that they're in or going through successfully. And he says that our Father in heaven is ready and willing to provide us with the needed wisdom to get through this season, right? If we only ask. God wants his children to grow in this spiritual maturity, right? And I want to touch on something for a moment that I haven't hit upon yet. Most people would have got there already, All right, and it's that the various views that are out there when it comes to this, when it comes to trials or the, that you're being tested, suffering. Some will say they're all from God 100% in his sovereign being. Others will say some are, while other, others aren't. And then other, the whole other group are going to say that none whatsoever are from God. None at all. He is neither willing and or permitting this at all. It's all the devil because the devil's out to get you. He hates you, right? Of course he does. But but we we were part of we were in that group for a while. It's never no sickness, no suffering, nothing comes from God at all. We've been in 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 that in that camp before. All right, but if we believe God is sovereign. If we believe God is in control, we have to decide how much, right? A little or a lot? Is it 40% or 60, right? Can it even work that way? (laughs) Well, I believe you need to answer that question biblically. And while searching the scriptures, you need to ask God for wisdom. And while, you'll stu- while you study, you'll grow and you'll mature because I'm not giving you the answer. That's not where we are right now. But there's different views on it. 
But if you're going to say God is sovereign and he's in control, it seems to be that's what he is then, okay? So, we have these trials, these times of suffering, whatever it is, hardships. And James says, though, if the, to the people who would call them tests, now, the, the reason why there's tests, and I don't like that, is some people will say, when, while researching, going through this, some will say these are all tests to test your faith, and depending on how good it, like, you do that, God is going to give you, he's going to grade you on it, right? And when God, and you don't know what the grade is, though, until you are face-to-face with the Lord in heaven, and you, then you'll be given your report card. And I'm just like, that's a little, like, I don't know, there's nothing really to back that up. I, I really don't like that. I really don't think. Now, if you use, you can use the word test very broadly, saying you're being tested, but God, God isn't tempting and stuff like that, right? He doesn't tempt anyone. But anyway, I, I just, we, we don't like, we, we were discussing that yesterday too, Olivia and I, and we just, it's like, there's too much confusion sometimes, I think. And, and what, how would you say it? <laughs> Right, the whole being graded thing, yes. Yeah, that we, we already know that you, you, you're saved, you're in Christ. Your salvation is fully assured. Right, there's no test to get into heaven, right? So anyway, but to those who would use that term, test, James says these are open book tests. You have your answers right here, right? God has given us the answers. James says we should ask God, meaning petitioning him in prayer, seeking him in his word. And James says that God will answer our request, request, right? But, but James puts a stipulation on how we ask for that knowledge, six through eight. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he says we must ask in faith. That's the first connection then that James proposes between faith and action. When we act to seek God's wisdom, we must act in accordance with faith. So in the context of what James teaches, we're talking about someone who's wavering, is unstable in where, in where they seek their understanding of their circumstances, right? In the midst of the trial, the believer who calls out to God for wisdom must remain stable in their reliance on God, right? There's some people who do not turn uh, to uh, the word of God for an answer, they would rather go to a prayer meeting and get a word from the Lord from somebody. I don't know if you guys know what I mean from by that, but somebody goes, oh, God's telling me something and here it is. And so they rest on that and you because they believe it's true. They believe it is from the Lord. Most of the times I believe it's brought on from emotion. But they're going to all these other things. It's just like the world day. You look at the world. Self-help, right? Oprah, <laughs> right? Dr. Phil, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what's popular. Is there anything that's popular right now with all that stuff? 
I think it's like Pilates and like new age yoga stuff, right? And stuff like that. But you're always going to all these things to try to find something to actually give you balance in order to walk through your life uh, a little bit more steady, right? Well, we're supposed to go to God. We're supposed to petition, petition him in prayer. We're supposed to search through his word for wisdom. That reliance begins with a recognition that God is God. He's sovereign and he is in control. Maybe I just gave you the answer I wasn't giving you earlier. Secondly, the reliance continues in seeking godly wisdom to face these circumstances rather than growing impatient, running to a worldly solution, going here, all over here, find the next book or the curriculum or whatever, right? That's the instability that James says results in God withholding the wisdom that we desire to face in that trial in verse seven. He says, God will withhold it from you. Now, I don't, I, I, I want to be clear. We can go to one another with our issues for prayer and, and for, for support. So I, I'm not saying just hundred, keep it all to yourself, go to the word and pray here. You know, I'm being overly dramatic here when I'm saying people are doing that and stuff, you know, okay. I just want to be clear. All right, but it is a mark of spiritual immaturity when we won't patiently wait on the Lord and, and then accept his answers when we receive them. Rather than seek better answers elsewhere or simply follow our own opinions or thoughts, for that person, there will always be a temptation to receive the world's answers because the world is always ready with answers to our questions. The one who doubts, the one who would lack uh, faith, should not uh, expect to receive anything from the Lord. This lack of faith and trust in God also shows then we don't have this full foundation. It's not a full, solid foundation, okay? It, it shows we're, our being as unstable in, in our ways, okay? So... It's all we're going to go through today. So we have to know and to, to ask God, but to ask him in a doubting way shows then what he is saying is double minded. If we had no faith, we would never ask at all. If we had no unbelief, we would have no doubting. So to be in the middle ground between faith and unbelief, he says, is to be double minded. So if you want God to give you wisdom to face trials and you want to learn, you need to learn stability. That's what we got to do. We need to rest in him not, and don't, don't go seeking hundreds of answers rather than just accepting his alone. It's his alone in his word. Okay. Any questions, comments, disagreements? <laughs>